ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends. And welcome back for another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I'm the great Brian Last, and thank you for being here once again, where the Tennessee Stud will tell us his tales, his personal journey throughout the world of professional wrestling. And without any further ado, the man himself, the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. And Ron, your favorite, the listener's favorite, I would say, the Bahamas. Here we go again. Yeah, here we go again. I mean, it seems like uh, we've done this and we've been here before, but uh, uh, there are a lot of fans uh, that if they if you da- haven't uh, done the Super Stud cast, uh, the number three is the Caribbean Chaos, and it's basically a lot of the Bahamas story. It's got a f- little bit of extra stuff in it about San Juan and some things like that, but there's a lot of our Studcast fans that have not heard uh, the last part of this story. So I want to go today and uh, finish out the story on the Bahamas. And it is a pretty tremendous story from beginning to end. It's unlike any, probably any place on earth that guys have ever wrestled. And uh, it's a real experience. And uh, just real quickly, I thought, Brian, and we'd start out by just going back for those that maybe didn't hear the first two episodes that are kind of joining us here without having any knowledge of what's going on here. We're in a, a place called the Nassau Stadium in Nassau, in the Bahamas, uh, and it's it's a crazy, crazy operation. You come in through a pool hall uh, to buy a ticket. Uh, it's got a crowd that uh, makes noises like in the old Batman movies back in the 60s and 70s or whatever. Uh, the old, they, every time you punch somebody, you get a bis, boom, bah. It's like uh, they're holding up a sign somewhere that tells them what to say. It's, it's so you, you, it's really, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable uh, compared to any place else that I've ever wrestled in the world. Uh, it has a wall around the outside of the stadium, and the bodies, they throw people over the wall to get them in for free. Uh, the guy that runs the place is a gentleman named Charlie. He has a pool hall in the front, and he has him a loaded pool cue. And, and if he's close to him and he sees a body come over the wall, he goes and whacks him in the side of the head with that pool cue. And uh, it's like, wow, what the heck is going on here? Uh, they throw rocks. Uh, they throw rocks from outside the stadium over to the inside. There's no roof, obviously, on the stadium. And they also throw rocks at the end of the night. There's like a meteorite shower. 
and the fans get up and hold their ringside chairs over their head so that they don't get hit by the rocks. There's a so there's, this wall has become a real problem here in uh, in Nassau. And uh, my my relative Lester Welch, my dad's uncle actually, my grandfather's brother Lester, is about the same age as my dad. He runs the Bahamas, and I've been talking to him about all these things about the wall. What do you do about the wall? And he's kind of come with a, he creates a, what's I call a Siegfried line there from World War One, where they got the barbed wire wrapped in real circles and they, and he plants that on top of the wall. And the, the first time he puts it up there, the, by the time the show starts, the entire wall is full of bodies that are standing up there with their shoulders to each other, holding on to the wire and bis boom, bah, they're all going crazy. And somebody breaks it off at the end, one end of that stadium, and every one of those bodies go off that wall backwards. It's an unbelievable sight. I mean, guys go there. They're not so concerned about what's going to happen in the ring. They're concerned about what's going to happen in the crowd. It's one of those places on earth that, that you never know what to expect when you go to the Bahamas. So this Siegfried wall breaks off and Lester comes back uh, with a, he breaks these bottles. I've never seen anything as vicious looking as this, but he eliminates the wall as being a way to get into the built to the stadium and he cements these broken bottles. He just breaks the tops off of them, leaves the jagged edges sticking up. He cements those on the top of the wall around the entire stadium. That's it. There's no more problem anymore. There's nobody going to get in over the wall or be able to stand on the wall or anything else. So he's eliminated that problem. There's only two things left here that they can see from outside the arena uh, what's going on in the in the stadium itself. And one of them is a giant oak tree on one side of the stadium, and on the other side of the stadium is a garage. So we focused on the oak tree because that when we left the night that Lester had put the glass on the wall, I complimented him. I said, gosh, Lester, I, you, that's fabulous. You've really got it figured out. Uh, but I, I, I went on and said, you know, but did you see the tree and the garage on both sides of the arena? And the tree is a oak tree. It's probably 200 feet tall. It's a massive oak tree. And he goes, eh, well, Ron, you know, I mean, I guess he's getting tired of hearing me complain about not getting a good payoff because half the crowd gets in for free. And those that can't get in for free, they climb the tree or they climb on top of the garage and they're watching for free anyway. So, he tells me, he says, well, Ron, uh, I, I think I'll do something about the tree. I'll take care of the tree. So the next week, he flies us. And I, I couldn't figure out why we don't fly with him in his private plane. He goes, and I think maybe his son, Roy Lee, goes with him and someone else maybe. Uh, but I get a, I get my first commercial flight in there. Because, and I can't figure out why. But I get there and and I, I'm looking around and it's the, you know still got the same tree there the whole deal, and I asked Lester I said you know gosh have you done anything and he says Ron I'm, he confides in me he says I'm going to tell you what's going on with the tree and he goes you know he goes I I wanted to cut the tree down and he goes I go to Charlie that runs the complex here. And Charlie tells him, he said, no, man, uh, you can't cut down an oak tree in the Bahamas. It's uh, it's illegal. 
there's so few you you can't do it so so he says uh so he said i talked to charlie the guy and he says well how about if we cut it half down and you know i'm like wow i started thinking about it you know like whoa you know th this thing's going to fall <laughs> with all these people in it and he, 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 you know, I asked him, I said, do you think that somebody's going to get hurt? You know, this tree, nobody's going to know about it. And he goes, that's right. You know, and he goes, so I can't keep my mouth shut. So I go to the guys in the dressing room and I say, you know, the oak tree over here, man, tonight's going to be full like it was last week and like it's been most every week that we've been here. I said, but Lester's gone in there and he sawed it half down. He collected up the sawdust and nobody will know. And so when guys don't want to work, they're, they're watching the oak tree. And because the, the wall has now got the glass on it, the oak tree is just, it's just packed with people. Um, and you can't see them. It's dark over in that area. You can't see them. You can just hear them screaming and making the noise and the bis boom, bah, they're doing exactly the same thing the crowd does. And so I'm watching that. I want to see this tree go, you know, and, and luckily I'm not in the ring and, and it's probably halfway through the, through the night. And all of a sudden you hear this, they're, they're rocking and rolling in the tree, man. They're just going crazy over there. And you hear this, <laughs> the first crack of the big, huge trunk of it. This tree had a trunk that's probably eight feet through thick, eight feet thick. I mean, it's a massive, massive tree. And you get that first, and, and so I run up on the bleachers because I want to watch this thing go. And uh, all the guys there, they, they're kind of waiting for it too. So they follow me. Several of them jump up there on the bleachers with me. And we watched this tree fall. It just was unbelievable sight. Uh, they Guys in the top part uh, were jumping out and they they were falling a great deal distance and and you could see them clamoring to try to get to the outside perimeter so that the tree and itself and the big limbs didn't land on them it was just an unbelievable to watch it go down and when it crashed it made this huge noise like it's like a a building collapsing and then you could see all of the people that, that weren't able to jump out, they were climbing out. So it was like, there must have been 200 or 300 people in that tree. And they were climbing out of the roots and coming out from underneath it. And it's like, it took like three minutes for all of the bodies to get out of there. And I was like, whoa, my gosh. And, you know, I, so I got a chance to talk to Charlie, the guy that, uh, that uh, ran the complex. And I said, Charlie, uh, did anybody get hurt in the tree? And he, he got, he's an old Cayman. I mean, he's an old Bahamian guy. So he says, uh, no, Ron, he goes, uh, man, uh, he goes, uh, some of them got up mighty slow, man. You know, and uh, that's to me that that's a good <laughs> indication that they're very low key there. And I was like, no big worry about it, man. Uh, you know, I guess everybody's okay. So the tree is gone. It's 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 ended now, and and we're we're beyond the tree. There's no way they can crowd up into that tree and watch from there anymore. Uh, so the next week that we go. 
two weeks later, we're there like every other week. We go two weeks later, and there's a lot of talk. And that week before we go, I hear this scuttlebutt going around in the dressing room about uh, killing the town, killing the Bahamas. And I'm like, who, what they talking about? You know, nobody really, nobody wants to come out and say, hey, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so are going to figure out how to kill the town. Guys just hated to go there because of all the problems and the rocks they were throwing and all the different things that were happening. They were concerned about going there. The payoff wasn't good because a lot of people were getting in free or they're in the tree watching or they're standing on the garage watching. So we go that next show and and I'm wrestling with uh, Danny Miller against Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch. The referee is Stu Schwartz. The garage is still there. Now, everybody that was in the tree tries to get on the garage. And when I saw the garage at the beginning of the matches, when they rang the matches, I climbed up and I saw that there looked like 300 people standing on the top of this garage. It's about 25 feet by 25 feet. Maybe has a, at its maximum height, it's got a pitch roof on it, probably maybe 15, 18 feet high. And there's 300 people standing on it. I mean, there's no way it's made for that kind of weight to be on the roof of it. So I kept, I told the other guys, I said, guys, I think that garage is going to go tonight. The roof is going to go on the garage. And guys are like, whoa, you you serious, Ron? I go, yeah, well, look how many people are on it. So then everybody wants it there again. We're not watching the matches. We're not concerned about what's going on in the ring. We're concerned about what's going on outside the stadium. Now we had the tree last time. This time we got the garage that may go. And sure enough, about just before the main event, they got the rocking and rolling over there on top of the garage. Bis, boom, bah. They're really, really raising hell. And the, and the roof collapsed, but it didn't collapse on slow like the tree went down uh, in a slow pattern and it took some time for it to happen. Uh, you had 300 people standing on top of a garage and instantly they were all gone. It's like all of them went straight down inside the garage. And, and, uh, and the garage had no concrete floor. It had a dirt floor, a sand floor, and the smoke came out like a, like a little bomb had gone off in there. Smoke just went up in the air about 100 feet or so. And then, then they started crawling out of there, just crawling out and over the walls and jumping off onto the ground. The walls never went, just the roof went. It was an unbelievable sight. Like everything else that seemed to happen there in the Bahamas, uh, you're never going to see that again, and, and I certainly never did. You think it's a good thing or a bad thing that you won't ever see it again? I don't know. I mean, when I look back and I tell this story about the Bahamas, uh, I think, you know, gosh, it was a miserable experience because of the the atmosphere and the, the building itself and the horrible dressing rooms. But, I mean, I never wrestled in such an entertaining country as the Bahamas because you just never knew what was going to happen there. And it was like, Every week was a different episode, just a phenomenal place to go and experience this. And I kind of feel like that I was really, I, I was really privileged 
to have been there and to have experienced wrestling during that time frame and in that particular group of islands. In terms of killing the town, are there other examples? Is it something that you had heard about being around wrestling at that point? Well, I have a great killing the town story besides the one I'm about to tell. And and there's an old timer named Charlie Carr that taught me how to shoot when I was a kid growing up. And he worked for my grandfather, Roy. He also worked a lot for my dad, Buddy Fuller. And he was a he was a he was a shooter. He was an old timer and he, he knew he knew how to shoot and he was very, very good. And they had a town that they used to run somewhere in West Virginia. They would travel from Nashville to West Virginia on two lane roads. It would take me Charlie told me this story. He said we would go it would take ten hours to get there. And it would take 10 hours to get back. And he said, the town wasn't drawing. And he said, so we, we got, we, we said, let's, let's, let's just kill this thing. Right. And back in those days, there were only four or six guys on a card. You'd have a single match. You'd have a second single match with the third and fourth guy. And then you'd have a two out of three fall tag. So you could run an entire show back in those days. This is probably back in the forties, I'd say. And he said, so he says he got together. He was a heel and he had the other heel and they got together with the two baby faces. And they said, uh, let's just ride together to the town and let's go early so that we can go meal around the town, go eat dinner, uh, go be seen together on the streets, have our arms around each other's shoulder. I mean, he said, Basically, they're just destroying the the, the whole the, the kayfabe image, obviously. And so I say, well, how did that go, man? And he goes, well, he says, so we got there. And he said it was probably about three o'clock in the afternoon. He said, we hung out. We went everywhere. We went to... Uh, down by the theater and we went into restaurants and we just were drove around town walked down the streets together he said we did everything that you shouldn't do and he said we hadn't been drawn there and we just knew this is just going to kill it it's going to be horrible tonight and he says so we all get in the car and he says we're going to the match it's about time for us to go get dressed and do the deal he says, we get within two blocks of the building and there's a line of people. He goes, hey, we had sold the sucker out. He said, it didn't, they, you know, it, 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 it turned on us, right? And he said, so I said, well, what did you guys do? And he said, well, we're all in the same car. And he said, as soon as we turned around the corner and we saw the building down there and a huge line out front, he said, he said, he said, get out, get out, cafe, get out, get out. We, <laughs> then the two baby faces grab their bag out of the truck and they run off and try to get down to the building. He says, so we go on and have a regular night's matches and stuff. But, you know, he says, our, our attempt to kill the town backfired horribly on us, right? <laughs> so, so, yes, I've heard about a kill the town type of match before. Charlie Carr had experienced it and tried it himself. Uh, so, anyway, we're... We're on this night in which the garage collapses, the roof on the garage collapses, and I'm in the last match with uh, Danny Miller and I against Dusty and Dick Murdoch. And Stu Swartz, a great referee, uh, uh, been around the business for a long, long time. So 
we're in the ring. Now, I don't know what they're going to do. You know, we, we've got to, we, we know what we're supposed to do in the match, but I have no idea that what they're going to do, uh, Dusty and Dick, but they're the ones that have got the little rumor going around that we're going to kill the Bahamas. We don't want to go back there anymore. So I'm wrestling, and then uh, Danny gets some, gets, they get some heat and uh, on Danny, and Danny gives me a hot tag, and I'm, I'm only in the business for a year, uh, and I'm, I'm not accustomed to, to anything unusual happening in a match. I don't know what to expect. I go in the ring, and I'm ready to make a comeback, and Murdoch's in the ring. Dusty's on the apron, and and Murdoch backs off into the turn, into the turnbuckle, like he's running from me. And so I don't know. I'm, I'm looking at him like, what are you doing? And the crowd kind of gets quiet because, you know, I would go in there, charge in there normally and start throwing some punches, or give him a bill out of there, whatever, do something. But I could see that he's, 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 he's got something in mind. So he, he takes, he steps out of the corner of the turnbuckle and he throws his leg over what looks to be like an imaginary motorcycle, you know, and he starts doing his hands like he's giving it some gas and he's, he's making the noise to me. He's looking at me and he's going, and then he starts running around the perimeter of the ring. That's a big old ring there in Nassau, probably 24 feet. I don't know. It's the biggest ring I think I ever wrestled in. And he's going around me in circles. I'm standing in the middle of the ring, and he's circling me and making the noise and, and kind of st- leaning his body over like he's riding a motorcycle. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I, I look at Stu, and Stu's looking at me, and he, he's like, you know, well, what are you going to do? And, and I go, well, what, are you, what, what should I do? Uh, what am I supposed to do? And he, he, and Stu's like shaking his head. Well, I, I don't know what you're supposed to do. And about that time, Murdoch goes around me about three or four times. And then he just starts, he starts making a noise like something's happening to his motorcycle. And then he takes a bump, falls straight backwards, middle of the ring. And I standing over him. I just looking down at him. There's no no reaction from the crowd. <laughs> They're trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And I, I look down at him and Dusty from the corner, he goes, uh, hey, ignorant. He goes, he's run out of gas. Cover him. And I go, oh, no. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> then for the first time, I see it. Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> Stu looks at me and he kind of throws his arms up like, well, I don't know, man. What are you going to do? So I cover him and Stu gets down and counts him out. And it's like, oh my gosh almighty, I've never, never seen anything like that. Uh, Dusty comes in the ring, gets him up, puts him on his shoulder and carries him out like he's, like he's totally dead. You know, he's, he's, he's just run out, run out of gas. He's totally blown up. I'm like, oh, gosh almighty, it was just a horrible thing. So that ended up being the last show in Nassau, Bahamas. What did Lester think about all that? Because it was his town. Uh, Lester wasn't too happy about it. You know, uh, 
and he didn't he didn't have much to say to me about it i guess he understood that i wasn't part i wasn't really part of it i i had no idea what they were going to do and because i was so young had danny miller that had been me that got the heat and tagged danny danny might have handled it a little differently but you know i i didn't have much experience in the ring at that point I'd only been wrestling for a year a little more than a year and this was like, wow, this is, I, I had no, no idea of how to handle it. So, you know, Lester didn't blame me for it. I'm sure that he had a lot of blame for, for, for Dusty and, and Dick Murdoch. I mean, obviously they were the perpetrators of the, of this and, and it's, uh, and I, you know, I got sure the guys in the dressing room, Everybody must have had a tremendous laugh. They must have by watching me up there, and and then and then when he ran out of gas, supposedly, and uh, and I cover him, I'm sure back there in the back they had to be going, "Oh my gosh, look at this man!" So, there, we never went back to the Bahamas. Well, I'm I'll take that back. We did go back, but we never went back to Nassau. It was like the end of Nassau. And we're later on going to go into Freeport some, but it was the end of Nassau and end of uh, the the big stadium shows that uh, that uh, they were going to have in the Bahamas. And I don't know how long they had been there. I have a feeling it wasn't over probably a year or, or two at the absolute most that Lester had run it. But uh, leave it to Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch to put an end to it, and they certainly did that night. Dick Murdoch has a reputation for being an excellent wrestler as well as someone who at times was a silly wrestler, as exhibited here in your story. Were there ever guys that you worked with that you had a very difficult time keeping a straight face while working in the ring with them? Some guys are really want to make you laugh. Yes, some guys just are. are and and Murdoch is, is great about that. I remember being in a tag match with Rob and I against Murdoch, and we we're very young. This is back in that same time frame, maybe 71, 72. And, uh, and Murdoch, is, Murdoch calls a spot with Rob. They lock up in the middle of the ring, and, and uh, so I asked Rob later, oh, what happened? And he tells me the story. But uh, he says, he says, Murdoch says to him, he says, uh, one big arm drag. And uh, and Rob doesn't do anything, you know. And I'm in the corner. I watch him and, you know, you can see that Dickie's like prepared to take a bump and and nothing happens. And so uh, <laughs> Murdoch says it again, but it's a little louder this time. And he goes, one big arm drag. And. <laughs> Rob doesn't do anything. Rob's kind of, I don't know why Rob doesn't give him the arm drag, but he doesn't do anything. What do you mean and, he doesn't do anything? I don't understand. Well, he, he's, <laughs> he's still locked up. He just stands there <laughs> locked up, you know? And, and then Dickie, the third time Dickie says it, now he says it loud. And he goes, one big arm drag, you know? And I hell, the people in the crowd can hear it, right? And, uh, and Rob... <laughs> Rob, but Rob lets him go. Rob lets his arms go, and he backs up a step, and he goes, "Who, me or you?" <laughs> <laughs> and Murdoch goes, and Murdoch goes real loud now to the whole crowd. He goes, "Who do you, who do you think, Edner? Me?" <laughs> and he comes charging Rob. And Rob arm drags him, and he takes a bump and goes out on the floor. 
I was like, oh man, I'm gee, my knee, like, whoa. So yeah, there are guys that really, really like to enjoy themselves in the ring. And, and uh, there are a lot of funny things that happen in the ring that, that make the business really good sometimes. When you come out of the ring, you're able to go back and go <laughs> to get a big laugh with them. Gosh, man, don't do that to me anymore. Uh, so there are situations like the one big arm drag, you know, in which you're like, whoa, my goodness, man. <laughs> Rob, what's that all about? Why? He says an arm drag, man. He said an arm drag, and you're just waiting there. So, so yeah, it's it's really a, it's really a strange business uh, than the fact that, you know, you wanted to be so serious, and, and you needed to be so serious. Uh, back in the day, that's the way business was. You were serious, or you weren't there very long. But there were a lot of people that Eduardo Perez is a guy that used to do that all the time. He would he would get himself into the ropes and and he would say, nah, 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 nah. He would make these noises and he would throw one arm out and he'd get his head out and his leg out. He would be all tangled up in the rope. And you don't even holding him, you know. And he'd, he'd, and when you came to get him out, he'd go na 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 back and back and ah na na na. And I was like, oh come on, man, you're gonna make me laugh here. So do you have those guys? Some guys that have that that uh, personality about them that don't mind uh, getting uh, getting a little laughter going, and uh, you hardly ever see it where the crowd realizes what's going on. Uh, like in this case where he runs out of gas. I mean, that's one that, you know, that's a tremendous one there. If you're going to kill a town, I don't know how you could do one better than that. If I asked your old crew in Southeastern which town in your territory they would want to kill, which town do you think they would pick? Uh, well, if you're talking about Knoxville, I tell you, Knoxville was so strong. It was such a great territory. Once it started to go, now there were a lot of towns when I first started there. I, we weren't drawing any money. It, the business was really not good, and we, I didn't have a crew put together. And we were going to these small towns. You had to wrestle in these small towns. And one of them, I'll never forget, is we wrestled in, I don't even remember the name of the town, but it's somewhere in the southeastern part of Kentucky. It's probably 75, 100 miles north of Knoxville. And Dutch Mantell and John Foley are the heels. <laughs> well, I'm a heel too, actually, And at that point. And it's a it's a, it's a tiny little town, and it has a one-lane bridge that comes across to the high school that only one car could come across at a time. And the people are coming across there. And and so Dutch Mantell, and Dutch has got a great sense of humor. Dutch, Dutch is us. He gets up on the bench, and he's looking out the window, and he's checking out the, the crowd as it comes up, which there's not much of a crowd there. You know, there's nobody coming in much. And he, he says to John Foley, he says, John, come here. Look at this, man. And so John gets up there on the bench with him, and they're both looking out the window. And he goes, he goes to me, he goes, Ron, he goes, he goes you got to see this. So I get up and I look out the window. Now there's a kid riding a donkey across the one lane bridge to buy a ticket. <laughs> now this, this is the truth. And, uh, and I mean, we're out in the middle of the sticks. I mean, we're, we're back way, way in the sticks in this little bitty town. And so 
<laughs> he says, so the kid gets off the donkey and we can hear him because he's fairly close and we're looking out the window and he's just down the few, few, few feet away going into the entrance and he slaps the donkey on the ass and he, and he says, go back and get mom and pop. No, you know? come on. I'm serious. <laughs> I'm serious. If you ask Dutch, it. I know Dutch would tell this story because he just, he went nuts. Dutch was like, did you hear what he said, Ron? They're going back. He says, I'm going to watch and see if mom and pop come back on that donkey, man. So it was like, they used to kid me back in those days when I first started Southeastern and I had to find these little spot shows and had to find out which towns were going to be good and which towns weren't. And so they asked me, Dutch asked me one time, we were in another one of these little small towns that, that didn't have much of a crowd. And he says, Ron, he goes, how do you find these towns? You know, and I said, well, Dutch, I was ribbing him. And I said, Dutch, I got, I said, on my wall in my home, I've got a big map of the, of the entire area. It, it has, it covers southeast, southeastern part of Kentucky and uh, 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 Tennessee from Nashville to east. And, you know, and I, I said, what I do to find the town and pick my spot shows, I said, I take a dart. And I said, I turn my back to the map and I throw that dart into the wall. And I said, wherever the dart lands, that's the town. And he's going, oh, I knew it, Ron. He goes, <laughs> no wonder because you find these little chicken shit towns. He goes, gosh almighty. <laughs> do you really do that? I said, no, Dutch, I don't. Dart in the map, but I got accused of that many times when I first started in Southeastern about how do you find these little towns? And what about in the southern end, Pensacola? Which town would your crew say they wish they could go in there and kill? Well, I be quite honest with you, and I hate to say this, and I hope I hope fans in this city don't get upset with me, but there was one city in Alabama I just never thought drew like it should and that was montgomery now it didn't make any yeah and i I could never figure that out uh now jimmy and and his father bill golden ran that town way back uh in the late 60s early 70s and uh and they did fair business there but i had the hardest time drawing money there we would we would have the same card in montgomery on a Wednesday that we would had on Birmingham on a Monday, we would sell out about well, and we couldn't draw we couldn't draw two thousand people in Montgomery. It was like a very very difficult town, and guys would sometimes say, you know, Ron, let's just <laughs> run Montgomery once a month and and just run some of these spot shows. He said we do better in the spot shows than we do in Montgomery, so. Montgomery was always a difficult town for us, uh, for whatever reason. I could never figure it out, but it was it never never was up to the same level as the as the other major cities in that in that southeastern area out of Pensacola. We'll be back with more of the Studcast after this word about the next Super Studcast, Super Studcast number seven, with Terry Funk and Stan the Lariat Hanson.
Record-breaking Terry Funk and Stan Hansen's Super Studcast number 7 is still rockin'. The two-hour Super Studcast immediately started breaking records and gives each star one hour to shine with the stud and the great Brian Last. The recently released Last Hour rest of the Terry Funk and Stan Hansen story is even wilder and more hilarious than the first two hours because both icons are together at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Three hours of fantastic stories and memories for only $2.99 is unbelievable entertainment and a historical treasure. The stud gives his fans four hours of free studcast each month and patrons another three hours. Following the stud is like having an audiobook of wrestling history at your fingertips. There's never been a wrestling podcast like it. Saddle up with Funk and Hanson history before the next Super Studcast is released on Tuesday, August 14th. The stud wants you to know one Hall of Famer is signed now and another is going to be added for Super Studcast number eight ride with a stud into podcasting history there you hear it super stud cast number seven with terry funk and stan the lariat hansen as well as the rest of the story where you actually get to hear the two of them together on the line at the same time all available at tnstud.com or to patrons of the show at patreon.com slash studcast only 2.99 for five star content coming at you each and every month. Three additional hours to what you already get with the Studcast. But Ron, we'll get back to everything else in a second. The reaction so far has been through the roof to Stan and Terry being on the show. Oh, it's just been absolutely amazing. And uh, the rest of the story is just being released. Um, in fact, uh, it's, it was released yesterday. So, and the rest of the story of all the things that we've done, the Super Studcast that we have done, Brian, I think the rest of the story is maybe as good as the two-hour version. Uh, the first 15 minutes of that is a must-listen to. If you're a wrestling fan, you're going to be just amazed at uh, the interaction between Terry Funk and and Stan Hansen. It's really, really a, a good program, and really proud of it. And uh, and it's just been phenomenally uh, accepted by patrons and thank i want to thank the patrons obviously they they help us keep uh, keep the stud cast all stud cast afloat and uh really really pleased with the reception of the terry funk and stan hansen program and uh really encourage fans if you haven't listened to a super stud cast by golly that's a good one to start with right there once again you can go to tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast only Two ninety nine for the rest of the story, as well as the Super Studcast. More information at the end of the program. But, Ron, we have a couple of listener questions here. Let's get right to it. This first one was sent in by Frank Burkett. When a guy contacted you about working in the 1970s and 1980s, did they sign for a month or every three months? Were they paid every night? And by cash or check, did you deduct Social Security or insurance? And could they draw unemployment? So a lot of interesting questions there, Ron, really about the relationship between you as the promoter and the wrestlers you would employ. That is really an interesting question. I mean, uh, and I'm sure a lot of fans out there uh, are, are going to, are going to, uh, <laughs> they're going to scratch their heads about this one, maybe. Uh, uh, first of all, we're not in the WWF days, uh, the WWF days in which you contract wrestlers uh they were doing it in florida some in the early 70s 
they were offering up a guarantee, but there was never, to my knowledge, ever a contract passed around. When you were on that 500 guarantee in the early 70s in Florida, you you didn't sign a contract to get it. Uh, you didn't sign for a certain period of time. Uh, they just sat down, Eddie or my dad, if it was him that you were talking to, and they would sit and say, you know, uh, we're willing to give you the 500 guarantee, and and that's it. I mean, you know, if they didn't like it, uh, you didn't like it, you give them a two-week notice and you're gone. If uh, they didn't like your work and they thought you weren't earning your guarantee, they give you a two-week notice and you were gone. Uh, in my day as a wrestler, when I started promoting in 1974 in Knoxville with Southeastern and started that company, I didn't have any contracts with anybody. I did not discuss how long you're going to be here. Because in the wrestling, in the sport of wrestling, you didn't know back in those days how long you're going to be here. You had no idea. It depended on are you going to get over. That that's what was really important. If you're going to get over, you're likely to be there for a while. If uh, you get a push and you can't get over and you you can't draw crowds, then you're probably not going to be there very long. So it was never a time frame guaranteed to any wrestler that you hired or brought into the crew about when you're going to go, how long you're going to be here, any of that. I always like to do a, I always felt that one year is a pretty substantial length of time to have a wrestler. If you're going to run a wrestling company, I believe that if you keep a guy more than one year at a time, you're probably you're probably not you're maximizing his his ability to draw for you in a way some guys are really good that you could keep them for two years but i always like to let a guy go i even did it for myself with southeastern uh, down in pensacola i would take off every other year i would work for a year uh bob armstrong would work for a year uh and then uh, the years that we weren't working together we'd take off and we'd go work in Georgia uh, or we'd go work in another territory somewhere and give ourselves a rest. And when you came back, you came back stronger and, and more powerful as, as a drawing card by being gone for a little period of time to make the fans really want to see you again. Uh, and you could explode business by coming back. You could stay out of there for a year. And then uh, when you came back, business would just jump tremendously usually and i thought that was a good process and a good plan i think he asked here about uh how you got paid if you got paid every night in the in the old days when i first started knoxville in 74 i paid every night i paid cash uh and uh, that was the procedure in a whole lot of territories and towns back in those days in the 70s in which you may get paid uh, weekly. Uh, I was a small territory and smaller towns. I kind of had to do that process. Guys needed money on a daily basis, and they felt more comfortable with that. Uh, and once I got to Pensacola, and once I opened the second Southeastern Wrestling in the South there, uh, I started paying by check. I paid by check every week. You got paid on Sundays in Pensacola. Guys were familiar with that. They knew about it. They were fine with it. They knew they were going to get their money. There was not going to be a problem. Uh, I think he asked if you deduct Social Security. 
uh, wrestlers were paid, and I don't know when this actually stopped, but I know that during the entire time I ran business from 1974 to 1988, I never took out Social Security. I wrestlers were called a they were they were you paid them 10.99 basically, and they're responsible for paying their own income tax. They're responsible for reporting their own taxes and taking care of their own taxes. Uh, you would pay, if you paid uh, by check, you had the figure pretty easily. At the end of the year, you figured up what everybody got, and you sent the 1099s out to them, and it was their responsibility. So that's the way we paid back in those days. I mean, once Vince gets his operation going, he's got guys on contract, and they're making so much. I don't know how he handled that. But I know that a lot of territories handled it that way. They paid by check. Uh, they, you were an independent contractor is what the term was for a wrestler. You just, that was what you did for a living, and you'd come in and work here, and then you'd go to another place and work there, and, and you, you just weren't accustomed to having Social Security taken out of your pay. Really a bad deal for a lot of wrestlers because – once they retire, after many, many years of effort in the ring, they didn't have that Social Security check coming in. Uh, and it it really probably devastated a lot of them in the end when they really needed income after their health was gone and they, they were injured and hurt or whatever it might be. They had no, no way to get that, no way to have a check coming in from someplace. Uh, very, very nasty part of it. Uh, insurance. I think you ask about insurance. Uh, you could not get insurance if you were a professional wrestler back in those days. Uh, I couldn't get insurance. I never found a company that would insure me. They would ask you, what do you do for a living? And if you, if you were honest with them, uh, and you said, I, I'm a professional wrestler, uh, they would, uh, they would almost throw you out. They would almost say, there's the door. You know, I mean, no, we can't insure you because, you know, wrestlers got hurt a lot. And and sometimes they got hurt very badly. So it was a dangerous, dangerous way to make a living. And the insurance companies just turned their back on you. There was there was practically no way you were going to get any insurance if you were a wrestler. Uh, and I think something about unemployment. Well, that that's the same thing. I mean, if you're not taking out Social Security... You're not paying any unemployment either. And a wrestler, really, really tough business to be in. When you're hurt as a wrestler, unless you're working for the right people that have a feeling that they, they owe you something and they want to take care of you, you had a bad injury. You had to, you break your leg. You don't work until your leg gets well and you're not going to get money get any money now i used to try to help guys that got injured for me especially once i went to pensacola and i had a more substantial business and a bigger lots of bigger cities to operate in i could afford to do it uh, when i couldn't in knoxville especially in the early days of knoxville but i uh, i would try to help them with their injuries and help them with some money to get through it uh, and it sometimes depended on how good a card how good of talent you were. Are you working on top or are you a first match? If you're a first match guy and you get hurt, you're probably not going to get much help. Uh, you're a main eventer and you get hurt in the line of work 
then you you may potentially get yourself a, a little bit of help to get you through a, a tough time. Did you ever have in Southeastern the IRS come to you because one of your wrestlers wasn't paying taxes or let's say an angry wife or girlfriend because a wrestler wasn't paying child support? Uh, no, no, I didn't. Uh, and, and one of the reasons is, and Brian, I'm going to be very honest with you about this. Nobody knew who owned these companies. Uh, you know, uh, you know, yeah, to think about it. I mean, you know, I, I can't really advertise. I'm a main event guy and one of the stars in the company. I can't say, well, I own this business and you know, you can find me at such and such. I never had a wrestling office in any of my companies. I, I operated my business out of my home and there was no place. If you had a, if you had a problem with Southeastern wrestling or with continental wrestling, you couldn't find out how to get in touch with who owns this company. <laughs> <That's pretty laughs> it was, smart. you know, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, why? It, because it would have hurt my business. I felt, you know, I can't, I, I can't uh, say that, well, Hey, I'm, I'm a, I'm a main eventer and I'm the champion and I own the company. You know, it's it's going to look pretty bad. So I just I ran my business that way. And so I never had anybody in the IRS knock on my door, uh, that type of deal. Now, I did have a problem. Later on, I did have a problem with the IRS, but it was my personal problem. And it was because I was I had not run a company and the Knoxville's company I had. I was making starting to make later on a. Uh, quite a bit of money. I was doing pretty darn well, and I was not handling the the accounting part of it as I should have been. And I did have a problem with the IRS, and uh, that's a story for another time. We'll get into that sometime. <laughs> it's a pretty good story too. But uh, yeah, yeah, you can you could. I didn't have never had them come to me though and say, uh, "Hey, you own this company, and I need to know about this guy or that guy, and uh, what did they actually make, and that type of thing." So never encountered that. Do you think wrestlers should have a union? Oh, geez, man. Now, back in the day when I was running business, no. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> I would have probably, you know, I would have probably, you had to look at, I, being a wrestler and a promoter, it's very different. Uh, you have to see business from two sides. If I'm a wrestler, yes, definitely, union. Uh, if you're a promoter, no, no way. You don't want it. So, you know, that I, I was kind of in, in the middle for that. If somebody would come to me with that, I would have been hard-pressed to, to give them a, a real clear answer because I just, I, if you're a promoter, you don't want that to happen because it's going to end up costing more money to operate and to get guys to work for you. But if you're a wrestler, you have opportunity then to make more money. So, that's a good question right there. No, I did not. Uh, I, I don't know uh, how I would have voted on that. We started the studcast today, Ron, talking about the Bahamas. What better way to end the show than another question about the Bahamas? This one's from Raleigh Owens in Green Turtle, Bahamas. Did you ever wrestle anywhere else in the Bahamas other than Nassau? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And, uh, you know, he's from green turtle. I got a green turtle story for you. You know, <laughs> uh, I've actually been to that little Island, uh, and it's, 
It's a small, tiny little place. In fact, it's so small that you can't land on Green Turtle. It's no, it's not big enough to, to land a plane on. You land on an island that's probably a mile. You can see Green Turtle from the island that you land on with your plane. And my dad and Lester and Eddie uh, took Eddie took Mike, uh, my dad and Rob and I went. Uh, Lester took his boys, uh, Roy Lee and Jackie. Uh, there was a couple of other wrestlers, might have been Don Curtis and a couple of other guys, and we went and spent two days on Green Turtle in the Bahamas, and we were going to go diving. We were diving for, for lobster, and they took us out on the first day we were there, and they took us out in these boats, probably four 20-foot boats, and it was rough really really rough shouldn't have been out there in my opinion and once i got to living in the keys after i retired i realized you know what weather you should go in and what weather you shouldn't we shouldn't have been out there that day and we're trying to dive i don't know how to dive i'm i'm in uh i might i think about a senior in high school probably uh all of us boys are about that same age mike knows how to dive because he's from Tampa. We're living in Atlanta. We don't get an opportunity to do much diving. Uh, so and Mike could use a tank. Uh, Eddie could use a tank. Uh, Curtis could use a tank. Lester couldn't. My dad couldn't. I couldn't. Uh, Rob, the, the, the rest of us couldn't use tanks. And it's really rough out there. So if you're in the water, uh, you find if you're in the water, you don't get seasick. Uh, but when you get out of water and you're into a boat that's rocking and back and forth, you got a tendency to start to get a little seasickness if you're not accustomed to being on the ocean. And what happens in this trip is we got three or four of these 20-foot boats out there, and guys are getting sick. People are getting sick. They they're get out of the boat, and they're finding the water. Once they get back in the boat, they're pretty quickly getting seasick because the boats are being tossed. So... The the Bahamian guys go, okay, uh, we're going to take a couple of boats back. So uh, these two boats right here, anybody that wants to go back that's sick, you get in these two boats. And there's four boats there. Well, everybody, I mean, they filled up the two boats. <laughs> there, and there's more people sick and want to go back than what wants to stay. And so I... I end up having to stay. Dad says, well, you can't. Ron, get over there. You're staying, man. You know, because the rest of us are sick. So I end up getting left out there with the rest of them. But but so we, we dive on that green turtle island. And uh, a lobster story for you. We catch lobster that first day. We probably caught, I guess, 35 lobsters. Uh, and we took them back. They cooked them for us that night. We spent the night there. We go back out the next day. The next day, we come back in. We have we have probably 10 lobsters, and then we've got this one monster lobster, uh, the biggest lobster I have ever seen in my life. They had to spear him. They couldn't go down and catch him with a net. He's too big. They speared him and brought him up. And the second night, we ate lobster the first night. The next night, they cooked the lobster for us again. And it, we all ate, every one of us wrestlers and all those boys and everything, ate that one lobster. He was that big, that one tail. It was absolutely unbelievably big lobster. So green turtle. Well, we've kind of covered green turtle. So didn't wrestle on green turtle. But, yes, I did wrestle there and uh, wrestled in Freeport. 
Freeport is the probably the northernmost island in the Bahama chain. It sits about 60 miles east of West Palm Beach. It's that far north. Uh, what happened is when Nassau closes, there's no wrestling in the Caribbean for a bit, and then Lester gets hooked up with running San Juan. He decides he wants to run Puerto Rico. So when he starts running Puerto Rico, you go to Puerto Rico and you wrestle on a Saturday, then you would get into his plane after flying there from Fort Lauderdale, which was seven hours on his little tiny plane to get to San Juan. You wrestle, you go back, you get on the plane, and you fly four more hours back to Freeport in the Bahamas. Uh, Lester's really a funny guy. He's very, very quiet. He's a tremendous pilot, but he never talks at all. And on these flights back from San Juan to to Freeport, he would go to sleep and he'd be, and sometimes there would be nobody in the co-pilot chair. And if there was, they didn't know how to fly. So he's the only pilot on the plane and he would go to sleep. And when he would go to sleep, it was really funny. One night he goes to sleep and when he goes to sleep, everybody else wakes up. <laughs> it's like, well, we're not comfortable. Hey, Lester's sleeping up there. You know what? 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 Where? How do we know we're going right? Well, he sets the course, and he he's he's got it on autopilot and the whole deal. And so one night we're flying into Freeport, and all of a sudden the plane goes, and it engines go. It, it it's out of power, and all of a sudden we'd start to nosedive. Now he's laying with his head back on the seat sleeping. And everybody hollers at him, hey, Lester, Lester, hey, hey, the, the, the plane's stopping, <laughs> the engines aren't running. And uh, he kind of looks back at everybody like, oh, boy, what? A, well, you want to just shut up. He looks, he's, he reaches down there and he flips on the auxiliary tank. And the plane is still, it's, it's nosed over. It's still losing altitude. And he puts his head back and goes to sleep. And it's still going, and it's still going down. And then it starts, and it smooths out, and then it levels out, and then it slowly starts coming back again. So Lester was this, he was just too cool, basically. You know, guys were just like, God, I can't believe, man, he don't get upset by anything. So we work in Freeport. Now, Freeport's kind of like Nassau in a way. But it's totally different in some ways. It's an outside arena. It doesn't have a wall around it. It's a, it's a smaller ring than Nassau's ring. And instead of Nassau's ring is just like a wrestling on concrete, this ring has nothing underneath it. I mean, it's like it just it, when you stand in the middle of the ring, you're like knee, knee deep. <laughs> you're, you're from the knees down deep. Uh, from the edge of the ring and it rains one. I remember one night wrestling in Freeport and it came a phenomenal rain. The fans sit out there and wait in the rain. They're, they're wet. Uh, the wrestlers are wet. Your shoes are wet. And I remember going to work in the ring in the last match. And it was, there was a mud puddle. It was actually two feet deep in the middle of the ring was a puddle of water. And I can't remember who I wrestled that night, but whoever it was got a hammer lock on me and he took me down face first in the puddle, in the water. And so I was like playing, you know, I was having to have a good time. So I get a mouthful of water and turn my head and spit it up into the air. 
And <laughs> Stu's refereeing. And he goes, what are you doing, man? He goes, you a porpoise or something? No, so it's like, it was a crazy place to work. Fans are pretty much like they were in Nassau, bis, boom, ba, same type of atmosphere. But we weren't there very long. It didn't last very long. It didn't draw very well. People in that country just didn't have the money to be able to afford to come to wrestling. So we did wrestle in Freeport. Um, uh, and, you know, that's... Um, we spend the night there too, get up the next day, wait all day. So you'd basically leave the States on a Saturday morning about 7 o'clock in the morning, and you wouldn't get back to America until Sunday night around 11, 12 o'clock. Uh, you spent uh, part of your time in Puerto Rico and the other part in the Bahamas. It was not a good situation for them. I, don't, I, I had a hard time figuring out why they wanted to continue to do it. Uh, Part of it was San Juan was great. San Juan would, and you ran in a baseball stadium called Huron Bithorn. Uh, it probably hold thirty thousand, and you would draw twenty thousand. It was a, it was a bigger market. It was definitely not a Bahamas operation. It was money being made there in San Juan. Did you ever eventually learn how to dive with the tank? Yes. Oh yes. Uh, and it wasn't too long after that time frame. Uh, once I went to school at the University of Miami, I used to go a lot to the Keys and my friends, my basketball buddies, and we would go down and rent boats and we would go out and dive on uh, on uh, uh, molasses. There are certain reefs out there that six, eight miles offshore that were beautiful reefs. And and we, we didn't know anything about diving. Now, this is back in the day. This is in the late 60s. Uh, and we didn't, we weren't certified. We didn't know how to dive, but we'd go stop by a dive shop and they'd rent us the gear and we'd go out there not knowing we couldn't connect the tank sometime. We couldn't figure out how to get the, the regulator onto the tank. And, uh, you know, so we, we were, we were being pretty dangerous actually, but it was only 40, 50 feet of water. It wasn't real, real deep. Uh, but, yeah, I learned to dive, and uh, and after I finished my hockey career and sold my second team, I bought a home in the in the in the Florida Keys, and I spent three years there. One of the best three years of my life, maybe. Really, really loved it. Dived almost every day. Well, before we continue our dive here, Ron, you have to pick a winner. Two great questions. Which one do you pick? I think I'm going to take uh, the gentleman with the with the Bahamas question uh, about wrestling somewhere other than Nassau. Uh, uh, the other question is a great question, too. The first question is a very, really good question. But uh, I think uh, simply because, you know, the timing, I guess, is right. The gentleman asked a Bahamian question, and it happens to be in a Bahamian episode. So that works for me. I think... Uh, Raleigh, I guess his name was Raleigh. That's that's a good old Bahamian name right there. <laughs> so Raleigh is the winner, I say. Congratulations, Raleigh. Someone from the show will be getting in touch with you. But as we wrap things up, we want to remind you, you can become a friend with the stud on Facebook, the page Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. Go there and like that page. You can also follow the Tennessee stud on Instagram and Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. 
You can check out his website. Of course, you guys know what it is, tnstud.com, for the weekly studcast, the monthly super studcast, the rest of the story, as well as you have the opportunity to take a ride through the great fan comments and see the pictures as well in the gallery. And the stud store if you want to get some studcast merchandise all at tnstud.com and of course the latest super studcast super studcast number seven is available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast two hours only $2.99 and don't forget you also get the fantastic rest of the story with funk and hansen that is also now available saddle up and ride into wrestling history with the tennessee stud once again tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast you can follow me on twitter at great brian last you can hear me on the 605 super podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever it is that you find your favorite podcast ron this is it for the bahamas at least for the foreseeable future where are we going next week okay uh before we jump there uh i want to say uh, I, I, I got to announce this, uh, you know, this, I just, I just got this done a couple of days ago and our next month, uh, super stud cast, I've already signed one person for it. And, uh, and I'm really proud of this one. I think this is going to be a great start. Um, I may do another a second person like we did with, uh, Terry and, and, uh, Stan Hansen, but I've got the honky tonk man. Uh, uh, who started uh, kind of for me back in the day, uh, trained by my grandfather's brother, Herb. Uh, Honky Tonk Man is signed and going to be on the next uh, Super Stud cast. And, and I may be going to have another surprise for people. I just, I just want to throw that one out there because I, I think Honky Tonk is just going to drive them crazy. Uh, uh, Next week, uh, we're going to go back to Florida. We're going to go back to the territory in 1972. We're going to go back and spend some time talking about the success of West Palm. And West Palm is about to start to have something that my dad always did, did tremendous business with it everywhere he ever went. We're going to have a Cadillac tournament start in West Palm in 1972. And we'll talk about how these Cadillac tournaments work and why they were such a success. Uh, one of them in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, really broke Memphis loose and made it the town that it became for many, many years uh, when uh, Billy Wicks and Sputnik Monroe wrestled for a Cadillac in Memphis and in, uh, in the baseball stadium with uh, Rocky Marciano as the referee. Almost 30,000 people, I guess it was. So... You know, a Cadillac tournament's a big thing. We're going to talk about one next week, and we're going back to back home to Florida, and we're going to be dealing with a lot of West Palm stuff. Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller, I'm the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. 